the key to a learning organization is the ability to listen to and understand the voices of the people that comprise the organization. And it's the job of staff in the organization to push the organization from the transactional to the relational. Caesar. Hey, Aisha. How you doing? I'm good. good. Who do we have today? Oh, today we have David Wertheimer. And, uh, you know, it's a really interesting story. I met David a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Actually, I was walking down the stairway in our department in the building. This sounds like a start of a really bad story. No, it's a good story. <laughs> and like it's walking what, down the staircase. <laughs> one of my colleagues, uh, Sarah Williams, was walking down the stairs. And okay. she says, I'm going to this meeting with these people from the Gates Foundation. You want to go with me? Huh? I said, sure. She says, yeah, we're meeting him downstairs. So I go down, and I'm actually having to be somewhere else in 15 minutes. <laughs> but I sit into the meeting, and David is there. Mm-hmm. And until just recently, he was director of democracy for the Gates Foundation. Uh-huh. And we sat there and talked for a while, and I talked with him about some of our design principles and stuff like that, and then uh-huh. I had to leave. Uh-huh. And then, lo and behold, about three months ago— okay. Someone emails me and said, I was on a panel with David, and he mentioned the work that you were doing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, and your whole concept of design for the margins and the oh civic God. design framework, and really would like to talk with you. Oh, my God. And then David called me, and we got reconnected <laughs> again and realized how what he was doing and the work that we are doing here mm-hmm. was uh, pretty much aligned. So uh, wow, you left quite an impression. Well, it was it was <laughs> interesting. And yeah, and so what I ended up doing, um, you know, we said we'd love to have you on the show, and yeah. you know how we normally talk and kind of really take our time with people. And uh, then he says, "So, do you want me to be on the show as someone from the Gates Foundation, or do you want me to be on the show in my new position at Seattle University School of Theology and Ministry?" I said, why? He says, well, if you want me to do it at the Gates Foundation, we need to do it in the next three weeks because I'm leaving. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, he's been with the foundation for uh, 12 years uh, doing the work around democracy. And it is not surprising that he's moving to a place of uh, theology and ministry, as you will find out when you hear our interview. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. How are you? I am very well. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. It's an honor. Uh, This is really great. You know, there are a couple of things that are like on our mind in this conversation. You know, we were talking with you yesterday, really interesting conversation, just setting up for yet another podcast with SOCAP. But as we were listening to you talk, it was just like, it really caught us because you were mentioning this whole thing about being inside of a foundation and also looking at other things around as it relates to kind of our civic life and democracy and the, this important distinction between transactions and relationships and how that works. And I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Sure. We live in a, in a context and in a society here that is, is highly transactional, whether you're thinking about the transactions we do here at the Gates Foundation, which are grants and contracts where we enter into a formal relationship with lots of documentation and lots of lots of material and work with our grantees or our contractors to to provide specific deliverables to us around a b and c that follow specific theories of change and theories of action but when you back away from that and you think about so what is it really that motivates and stimulates real change in communities in individuals or even in societies I actually think the core of that is relationships rather than transactions. We are 
uh, fundamentally, I think, a relational species. Uh, and we seek meaning, we find meaning in relationships with each other. Those are some of the most powerful tools we have to both connect with other people, but also to change our, our, our contexts and to change the world around us. So my thinking really here over the last 13 years or so at the Gates Foundation has been that we constantly need to think about how to move our work from a, a purely transactional context to uh, an interactional context where relationships are really helping to drive the, the work and helping to drive the vision and helping to drive the changes that we want to see in the world. So when you have transactions like you're describing, you know, grants and contracts, you can actually kind of see the output, if you will, you know, whether yeah. it be in terms of like financial gain or otherwise. Can you give an example of a time that you've seen the gain from like a relational or interactional experience? And I don't mean to push back. I'm just curious. Yeah, I think yeah. a lot of people think, okay, if there isn't a quantitative output, then it's if it's not measurable, it hasn't made a change. So yeah. can you maybe describe an example you've seen where that relationship has actually created this sort of almost tangible change? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm someone who I believe that the the, the plural of anecdote mm-hmm. is data. <laughs> wow. The plural of anecdote is data. Yeah, that's 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 wow. I that's something I believe. And for example, I worked here for 10 years on a strategy around family homelessness. Uh-huh. And we we did a lot of grants and we did a lot of contracts. We spent a lot of money working to help to transform the systems of care and the systems of housing that respond to families in crisis. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the questions that's always asked is, you know, how's it going? How are you doing? Of course, you have, you know, these vast data systems that are the homelessness management information system. It's called HMIS that the feds maintain. Uh, and you can look at sort of trends of, of family homelessness and trends of what's happening, how many families are out there, uh, where those families are in the process of moving through the system. But when I really wanted to try and understand the the impact of what we were doing, not just the specific outputs in terms of the data, but the impacts on people, I would go into the field and I would actually ask some of the, the, the contractors or the grantees that we worked with to sit me down with families who had experienced homelessness or were homeless. And I would, I would ask them, I'd say, so what's made the difference to you? And what's helped you move in a pathway from crisis to stability? Hmm. And time and again, what the the individual families told me was it was the relationships that they had with the people that were around them that were there to try to help and support them. It was, in a sense, the the presence or the absence of social capital at a Hmm. very granular level. Hmm. Uh, And uh, I'm someone who uh, believes that... that, uh, the nuclear family is is a is a construct hmm. of sort of a the industrial revolution and beyond. Family systems used to be for millennia organized uh, around extended kinship networks. Yeah, right. And uh, you had multiple different roles within kinship networks of individuals who were younger and older and and in between. And families moved and communities were organized around extended kinship networks or, or tribal mm-hmm. relationships even. And with the Industrial Revolution, the, the motivation for organization of families and movement of families switched from kinship to capital. Mm. Wow. And as they switched from kinship to capital, uh, nuclear families began to become the organizing principle. And if you're at the very top of the socioeconomic pyramid, the, the nuclear family works because the social capital that you're missing 
you can purchase if you need right. childcare while you're at work or you need uh, something after school or, right. or even pay to play in terms of sports teams now in public schools. But if you're not in the top of the pyramid and you have moved your family or reorganized your family system around work rather than kinship, you're missing all those components of social capital. Mm-hmm. And that's with the absence of those supports, that's one of the reasons that families fall into homelessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no surprise in our region here that about three quarters of the families that are on the street are headed by single moms. Mm. And single moms have the least access to capital because they're, you know, the family living wage in this community is, is a minimum of about $29 an hour. Uh, the minimum wage is $15 an hour. That's a great, generous minimum wage when you look at other minimum wages around the country, but it's still half of what a family needs to basically be stable in the community. So one of the things that that I look for in terms of the relationship piece is, are the services that we're funding, are the grants that we're making, are the data that are being collected at the macro level, when you dig down into the granular level, are you in fact helping to to replace the missing social capital Hmm. that a family needs to thrive? And when I talk to individual families and they say, it was our case manager who really spent time with us and helped me connect to the systems that helped me find a better job or childcare for my kid or whatever I may need to, to thrive. That to me is, again, the relationship piece. Mm. And I think one of the really interesting questions in our society overall, particularly in the current era, is are we committed to the process of trying to replace missing social capital mm. in ways that is maximally supportive to families that are not necessarily at the top of the socioeconomic pyramid, or are we not? You know, I think of, of Scandinavian countries where every new family, regardless of who they are or what their, their status is, get a baby box when, when their baby is born. Right? Every single family gets the, the key ingredients of, gee, what, what do you need to have a healthy baby in your house? And it doesn't matter if you're the, you know, the king of Denmark or you know, a newly arrived uh, immigrant from, from North Africa. If you're living in Scandinavia, in certain Scandinavian countries, you get a baby box. Are we committed to that level of granular support Mm. uh, at a relational level of the families that are most vulnerable in our communities? You know, it's interesting, David, you say, I really, I really, uh, (laughs) I just love that analysis. And I think, uh, well, really agree with it. And I think one of the problems we're having in this country, too, is not what you're saying about uh, this you know, this kind of move to having these kind of relationships actually be transactional when they really need to be much more relational uh, are not just affecting the folks who are most vulnerable in our society. They're actually increasingly uh, affecting larger and larger portions of our society, even people who are working. I agree. It's like that's the other, the real underbelly of what's happening with, we talk about the, you know, the 99%. Well, there's so many people who are in this space. You know, even if they're managing to hold things together through transactions, it's not giving them what relationships would give them if they were getting the same thing. And so there's, I think there's, there's a sense of loss, of community, of connections with others. And I think apropos part of what we're focusing on in the show is it also then erodes our civic culture. Mm-hmm. Right? It really disconnects us from each other in a way that, and that's not a thing I think can be transactional. For us, that's the thing on the table. It's like, how do we then realize that we've taken so much of our uh, social life and uh, 
made it so that you could actually purchase it. It could be a transactional relationship. How do we stitch together kind of a public with that kind of reality out there? Because that's what we would need to do to kind of change the way we are going forward. It seems as long as some people are able to have a transactional relationship around some of those things and others aren't, then we have this divide, and it's going to be, well, who's going to get to decide? Who's going to get their issue on the table? I'm just wondering how we actually recenter ourselves around this notion of relationship. That is a really, a really great question. <laughs> it's uh, a million-dollar question. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a small question. And I, I don't, I, I certainly don't think I have an answer that's right. that's that's conclusive to that question. But but I will, I will say this about that. I think one of the challenges in our society right now mm-hmm. is the fragmentation of the systems that are supposed to be there to promote and support healthy relationships. Mm. What are these systems? For example. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for example, we talk about the social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Big conversation about what are the social determinants of health. And uh, if you work in the healthcare arena, that means one thing. If you work in the housing arena, that means another thing. If you work in the education arena, that means something else. Right. We talk about the social determinants of educational attainment. Well, if you work in the school system, that means one thing. If you work in the medical system, that means another thing. You talk about the social determinants of economic success. If you work in the banking industry, that means one thing. If you're living on the margins in a city, that means another thing. So one of the interesting dilemmas that I've encountered over, over time is that when you frame social determinants narrowly by health or educational success or economic success, you don't have a complete conversation. You don't have a full conversation across all of the domains that should be aligned around creating the relationships that allow families and individuals to thrive. And what I really think we need to think about is changing that conversation in all of those systems to a conversation about the social determinants of well-being. What does it mean to thrive? And really in the health arena, the social determinants of health are about well-being. In the education arena, the social determinants of educational opportunity are about well-being. In the economic arena, the social determinants of economic success are about well-being. So what would happen if we all agreed to have a single conversation rather than these fragmented conversations about the Affordable Care Act or the public school system or the economic infrastructure of our society? What if we actually recognized that they're all connected and they all are ultimately the same thing? And what would it mean for educators and health professionals and uh, economic analysts and and all to have the same conversation around the same table? It's interesting, David, because this is reminding me that another part of the foundation you've been going around in uh, the country looking at kind of our practices around civic life and democracy in different places. And it seems to me to have that conversation, then we really have to have some kind of robust civic processes in place that actually can construct the spaces for that. As you have been running around the country, talking to people and stuff, are you finding hope that we're moving in that direction? I think so. I am, and here at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, we are, by definition, optimists. (laughs) Good. (laughs) The term I prefer is urgent optimists, Hmm. because I think there's an urgency to what we need to be, be thinking about right now. 
And, you know, I would say, yes, I think there, there is cause for optimism and, and it's, it's different in each community. So I had the great opportunity to visit six cities uh, that included Boston, where you guys are, New York, Chicago, Pittsburgh, uh, Houston, and, and Portland, Oregon. And one of the things, of course, you conclude from when you do a trip like that is once you've seen one city, you've seen one city, because uh, each of them are unique. <laughs> but each city, there was something or a number of things in each city that really stood out to say, wow, there's something really fascinating happening mm. here. For example, in Boston, where you guys are, I had no idea before I went to Boston that, that more than half the land area in Boston is, is occupied by nonprofit institutions, educational mm-hmm. institutions. Yeah. And that creates, in, in some ways, an enormous uh, economic challenge for Boston because all of that land is tax-exempt in terms of property taxes. And one of the things that's happened in Boston, which was fascinating to me, is all those educational institutions, or many of them at least, are in partnership with each other, talking about what it means for them as educational institutions to give back to the community that they're actually part of. Mm. Uh, and there are these collaboratives and these conversations and the work that you guys are doing at MIT. And it, it's absolutely fascinating to see the ways in which the rich array of educational institutions have entered into dialogue with each other and with local government and local community around what it means to be uh, a citizen in the context of a community where there's this rich array of educational, uh, academic research talent that needs to figure out new ways to get back to the community because you're not paying taxes. It's absolutely fascinating. In Pittsburgh, I was stunned by what's happened there because they were 40 years ago, 750,000 people. And today they're less than 350,000 people. There are you know, 27,000 vacant lots in Pittsburgh, wow. which is extraordinary. I mean, people have fled the city. And the people who remain in Pittsburgh at the community level, uh, at the nonprofit level, at the philanthropic level, at the government level, all of them are determined to have Pittsburgh shine again, to have Pittsburgh just be an amazing place. And the adversity of the economic downturn of the Rust Belt has really galvanized energy in Pittsburgh around civic relationship and civic participation. So the four biggest foundations that, that are that are in their third or fourth generation that are that are old steel and coal money, they meet together quarterly. And the $500 million a year that they pump into the local Allegheny County economy, they align their investments together to figure out the best way to have the maximal impact on their community. We met with the, the mayor of Pittsburgh who, who told us that you know, he and the county executive in Allegheny County meet once a week for coffee, just the two of them. And their agenda is, what do we do? What are we doing to make this region sing? Mm. And you know, I asked them, how, how do you do that? You're both politicians. Uh, you know, that, that, <laughs> that happened. And what the mayor said to us was fascinating. He said, I'm the mayor of Pittsburgh and all I want is for this region to shine again. My, my friend, who's the county executive, all he wants is to make Allegheny County shine again. We're not running for other offices. We're, we're, we're totally invested in what's happening here now. And again, it's the relationship of the two of them without all the transactional stuff of their staffs and their, and their negotiators and all that. It's just the two of them having coffee once a week. It's like, that's the, that's the key. That's the connector. Uh, and those foundations meeting around the table together to coordinate. Um, 
those relationships have have emerged from the adversity of the economic downturn mm-hmm. and are in the process of transforming the city. You know, it's funny you you mentioned the Boston case because uh, particularly around the universities, because we do have this issue here. I can just think about MIT and some of the Northeastern and others who are, where there are people inside the universities and some of the leadership who really do want to have a different relationship with the community. And at the same time, they have this real dilemma. I'll take MIT, for example. MIT's in Cambridge. It owns a lot of land here. But it actually has a separate organization called Mintempco, which is a developer, which actually makes is owned by MIT, but it's an independent organization that does all of the development work. So it has a highly transactional developer framework for how it goes about things. And so I think one of the issues like here then is there is no relationship aspect to the Mintemco approach. While there may be inside of MIT people who are trying to do that, the community, and so then you find these really interesting issues where like either the students are organizing or faculty and students are organizing uh, because they're saying, well, there's a disconnect between what the university says it wants and then what this other part of it is actually doing. And... uh, and the university hasn't figured out how to how to ne- negotiate that, right? Because they're they're driven by different, really different values. One is driven; it's a developer, so it acts like a developer, right? And the other is the university says, "No, we are an education space, and we're supposed to be really adding value to our community in lots of different ways." And so it's a tension, right? It's a real tension that I think is structurally built into things. I don't think we know our way out of it. You know, we don't know our way out of it in some sense. Yeah, and I think there's like a sort of uh, what it what it for me what I feel like you're saying resonates on a deeper level of like there's a problem in that what you were describing earlier, David, about you know the sort of kinship networks disintegrating, and um, you know capital taking the place of of social relationships is true on not just an individual level but on a sort of organizational level as well. Mm-hmm. even if the intention of individuals within that organization is otherwise. I guess for me it becomes a question of like how do you then scale, for lack of better term, it's, it's, even that's such a market <laughs> word, right? Sorry. <laughs> but how do you, you know, I guess scale or whatever, quote-unquote scale, the sort of individual intentions to the level of the organization? Like what does that even look like? You know, especially at a time when maybe as individuals we're also struggling with the sense of connectivity. Yeah. And it's evident through individual mental health. It's evident through so many other sort of, like you said, social determinants. And then as we're going through this individual crisis, we're also going through understandably an organizational crisis. Yeah. How do you negotiate that? You know, can you negotiate that? Well, can you negotiate that? Yeah. I think that's part of what, you know, we're, yeah. we're struggling with in some ways. You like the big questions. I love yeah, that. Well, well, we do. We like, I mean, yeah. you know, and it's just kind of, I, I, I assume, you know, inside the foundation, the same thing exists because yeah. there are these multiple worlds that people are living in. I actually think th- there are multiple worlds that we're living in. And I think that I'm not someone who believes that corporations are individuals. Yeah. Right. But corporations or organizations are the collect of the individuals that comprise them. And those individuals, I think when they feel empowered, have the ability to shape the culture that they're part of. And when they're feeling disempowered, they are—they don't necessarily feel the power to shape the institution that they're part of. And I think that's, that's an issue uh, within families. It's an issue within communities. It's an issue within organizations. It's an issue within our nation. 
uh, right now in our nation? Who who is feeling empowered? Mm. Uh, and and who is who is feeling like they they own the collect, yeah. if you will, and who's inside and who's outside? It's is who who belongs and who's othered. And I, I think that the more as our as as we think about our institutions, the more we think about what it means to promote belonging at all levels of the institution, the more we can think about sort of going back to that that framework that it is the individuals, it is the individual stories that each of us bring to life that collectively are the institutions that we're part of. That's so interesting. I've never thought of corporations as being disenfranchised in some way. Like, I mean, you you talk about, like, if they were empowered, they might take on a sort of more productive role in our civic life. But I've never thought of them as disempowered, which I think is so fascinating. Could you speak to, like, is this like a sort of bullied becomes the bullier mentality? Like, what is this about that you're talking about with, you know, empowerment in corporations? No, I think it's empowerment of the individuals. Oh, I see. Yeah. Corporation. Oh, okay. Corporation okay. Itself. Okay. So here at the Gates Foundation, for example, where we have about 1,600 employees, mm-hmm. wow. the employees, in, in many respects, the employees define and shape the culture of the organization as much as the organization defines and shapes the culture uh, of the people. And I think the, the, the key to a, a learning organization is the ability to, to listen to and understand the voices of the people that comprise the organization. Mm. So one quick story, many years ago here, I was accidental hallway conversation with a very influential person at the foundation. And we were talking about the organization. And one of the metaphors I use is the metaphor of DNA, right? You can't really change your DNA uh, yourself. In your, in your, in, but if you understand that all DNA has flaws, and if you understand the flaws in your DNA, you can, you can mitigate some of the risks. So if you know you have a predisposition to diabetes, you can watch your diet and your exercise, and you can, to some degree, uh, mitigate the risk of diabetes. And um, here at the Gates Foundation, our, our, our DNA is, you know, in the hallways. Uh, we, we have amazing uh, living donors who, who are very present and engaged with the work. And I was having this conversation with a person that I, I won't name, and I, I shared this metaphor about DNA. And I said, you know, our, our DNA here is, is highly transactional. And it's the job of staff in the organization to push the organization from the transactional to the relational so that there's a balance between transactions and relationships and we can be maximally effective in our work. And this person said to me, do you really believe that? And I said, uh, yeah, I do. Uh, and they said to me, well, you know, if, if you really believe that, I'm not sure you should be working here. Wow. Whoa. And I went home and uh, well, I said to this person, well, you know, I'm, I grew up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan uh, when it was a dump. I'm a pretty tough street kid <laughs> and I have a thick skin. And if I heard that from you and didn't have a thick skin, I might interpret that as an invitation to leave. But because I do have a thick skin, I hear what you're saying as the reason why I need to be here. And the person said, well, I've got a meeting to go to. And off they went. So I went home that night and I I told my husband the story. And he said, you've got a big mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And at 8 o'clock that night, uh, I got an email from this person saying, I need to see you in my office at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. Oh, gosh. And I showed it to, to Paul, my husband, and... He said, you're going to get fired tomorrow. (laughs) I said, I don't think so. And I went in at 8 o'clock in the morning. This person said, sit down, close the door. I was relieved that HR wasn't in the room with them. And (laughs) they said, you know, I thought a lot about what you said yesterday. I said, okay. And they said, actually, when you're talking about what our culture looks like and this transaction, they said, I think you're right. 
And I said, well, thanks. And they said, and also uh, they said, I need to apologize because this person said, I, I didn't realize that someone in my position saying something like that to you might be interpreted as an invitation to, to leave the organization. And I said, well, thanks very much. And that to me was an indication that organizations through communication, through relationships, a brief hallway conversation can learn and grow, can evolve. And they're not stuck mired in one way of doing business or, 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 or one, one approach to problem solving. So, you know, even in a place as, as, as big as the Gates Foundation or, and we're, we're, we're minuscule compared to, to MIT, um, I think there's the capacity for relationships, again, that granular level mm-hmm. of kinship to actually shift tectonically mm-hmm. how an organization operates and thinks about itself. There's this really cool thing that you're describing where it's like, you know, we've been talking a lot about the civic design framework in season one, and we talked a lot about this season thinking about how institutions and organizations can engage with the civic outside beyond their sort of walls. Yes. And what you're describing is kind of cool because it's like, well, organizations are this microcosm of communities, and maybe the way in which they learn to treat each other within the organization across these sort of hierarchies that you're describing in this, you know, stunning story that you experienced is in itself a way that they can learn to better engage with civic life, just even internal to the to the walls, you know? I agree. I think that's a really, a really good observation. Yeah, I actually, yeah, I think this is fascinating because this is saying in some sense that I'm going to take it to a, like yeah. it's another place, which yeah. is to say, like, look, if we're really trying to strengthen the civic, Mm-hmm. And really strengthen the public's, you know, kind of muscle and democracy and their role in it. There is work to do inside mm-hmm. of the, all the places in which we reside and work. So there's work in the home to do, but there's also work in these organizations. And right. these organizations uh, need to internally experience and grapple with relationship. Mm-hmm. And we need to actually push that internally. Mm-hmm. And what's and what's fascinating about that for me is just thinking about how I don't know. I'm just I'm going to say you know you've witnessed more of this uh, probably than I have, but how prevalent is that thinking? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we feel like some sense inside of the universities and community-based institutions, there's a lot of push to become more transactional. Mm-hmm. A lot of things are pushing things to be more transactional, but there was particularly for a lot of community-based organizations, there was already a basis of relationship. So it's fighting this kind of push of transactional into these spaces that were highly relational. But in these companies sometimes, these large places, these large institutions, whatever they are, there's there's also this huge infrastructure that's all transactional, a lot of push for the transactional. And it's, it's interesting to think about what would it look like to, what does the relational push look like in organizations? Mm. How do you do that? I noticed that you, you know, you evoke the whole thing about kind of learning communities mm-hmm. as one vehicle to do that. But I, I wonder if this is like actually a call for, for corporations about their role actually in democracy is actually to make their life inside mm-hmm. more relational. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. And I think that it's beholden on the individuals who are part of the organization to act in such a way that that is their expectation Mm -hmm. that they will be treated relationally Mm -hmm. and not transactionally. And that means being able to, for lack of a better way of putting it, 
own your own power. Mm. And even doing that, going back to Caesar, one of the most important things you said to me was, was starting at the margins mm-hmm. right. with where the power sits and creating that power at the margins rather than at the top or, or in the middle. And one other story years ago, I started a, an organization, or I, I was the first executive director of an organization in New York that was working on the issue of anti-gay violence. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was in the, the early 1980s, and it was not an issue that, that anybody had really talked about, but, but it was an issue that was devastating to our community. Right. And one of the things we did was we, we offered self-defense classes, not to, you know, turn gay people into killing machines. That was <laughs> self-defense classes are are to, to help empower the individual sense of themselves and, and their, their sense of who they are. Yeah. And one of the things that our trainer did at the, at the very beginning of the classes we offered was he would have, and I'll take the example of a group of gay men who he, uh, he had stand around in a circle and look at each other. And he asked each man to say to the group, I am a powerful gay man. And it was amazing how many of the men couldn't say it. Or if they said it, they burst into tears while they were saying it because they didn't necessarily believe it. Hmm. So in this case, a group that was at the margins in New York in the 1980s, especially as, as we were rapidly being decimated by HIV that had had burst into the community. This was a group of individuals, again, at a very micro relational level, were not in touch with or able to own their own power. Hmm. And even getting them to say, I am a powerful gay man, was really hard. But once they said it, and once the, as the class proceeded, they began to believe it, they were transformed. And they transformed themselves from from a perspective of potential victim to the perspective of an individual who has his own power. Wow. So I think that that in, in our organizations, we have to think about how we empower individuals to say, you really own the culture. Mm. You really are creating the culture. Right. When when I, I got my first big promotion here at the Gates Foundation and and uh uh, the, the president of the U.S. program, extraordinary man, came in and you know congratulated me. And he said, okay, so he said, I know you like to tilt at windmills. And he said, and I know you like to, to criticize the organization. <laughs> he said, and, and that's okay. He said, we need to hear that criticism. He said, but he said, you're now a manager here. So when you're criticizing management, you're criticizing yourself. Mm. He said, so don't just bring me the challenges, bring me the solutions. Mm-hmm. And that was a really empowering thing for him to say to me. And it also transformed how I thought about my role at the organization as a manager in terms of the culture that I was part of creating. And that I shouldn't just go wah, 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 and whine about it, but actually act, behave, and function in a way that reflected what I thought the organization needs and can be. I was just thinking, you know, again, I'm just going to use MIT as an example, but it's it's been in other organizations I've seen too, it's like, you come into MIT, uh, particularly if you're an employee here, and they'll talk about the MIT culture mm-hmm. and about what things can happen or can't happen or how things happen because mm-hmm. of the MIT culture. Right. And in some sense, it places the people inside the organization as basically folks who have to adapt into a culture, right. and that culture is somehow static. Right. As opposed to saying, 
you are the culture makers here. Correct. What's the culture you're going to make? Right. And really, that's much more empowering. And maybe that's the call that's really yeah. out there, you know, yeah. inside of organizations is really getting, you know, them to say, you know, for employees and people to be able to say, I am the culture maker inside this organization. Yes. And for the organizations to actually acknowledge that and support that, uh, because then we'll, we'll have a different space. And, you know, particularly as the time where we're trying to diversify more who's mm-hmm. in organizations, mm-hmm. who's in power in these organizations or not. But as you diversify that, then you actually have to raise this question is, well, the people who are here are going to make this culture. and We're going to change. We're mm-hmm. going to be different. Mm-hmm. And particularly with the idea of we're going to be more relational mm-hmm. so we can be actually more responsible Mm -hmm. in relationship to ourselves in the broader society. I love that call, yeah. From asking your employees to be an ambassador of the sort of mission statement of an organization to being actually autonomous, Yeah, you know, and and carrying their own sense of individuality and empowerment is, that makes my heart so happy (laughs) to think about (laughs) that being a world that could exist, (laughs) not just, you know, in at MIT, but in my future job and all the future employment opportunities that people have. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. I totally agree. I think that in any organization or in any kivitas, mm-hmm. the people define the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the people have to feel their power to define the culture, mm-hmm. which is really hard when you're at the margins. Mm-hmm. Right. But the more we can help people find their power, which can mean finding their voice, finding their energy, finding their time, finding their caring mm-hmm. in an organization, whether it's small, large, or, or even the, the nation, right? Mm-hmm. We define the culture. Mm. And we are the culture. And again, that, you know, put all those anecdotes together and you have the data of what a culture is. And it, it, we, are, we are all accountable to it. Oof. I love it. David, I, this has been this wonderful. This is incredible. Talking. Yeah. You're I'm incredible. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> really fun. I love these, these big conversations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this has been great. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with yeah. us. Yeah. I just, this has been wonderful. It's a pleasure to do it. And uh, thank you for. Everything you guys are doing, uh, again, that visit to MIT and your, your, your people was so powerful and extraordinary. So you guys are, are, you are changing the culture, and I, I thank you for that. Uh, thanks, Dave. Thanks very much. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. So, Ayushi, what did you think? Wow. This was incredible to have him come right after Eric. I mean, like, it was, it was so in sync. It was phenomenal that he, on his own, was talking about you know, transactions and relationships and this sort of like dichotomy and how he sees his role in the Gates Foundation as sort of almost like bridging the two. Yeah. And it, it really spun, like it was cool because it addressed what Eric had said about this dichotomy. And yet he was looking for the bridge between them. Yeah, it really was. And uh, I just so appreciate him and, you know, him making the space and the time, which must be yeah. a crazy time in his life crazy right time now. for him, yeah. To actually make the time to be with us. And I'm looking forward to see what he does next, you know, kind yeah. of, you know, in his school of theology and ministry. Uh, we might have to have him back. And actually, I think he would have a really interesting conversation about not just transaction and relationships, yeah. but actually where we are spiritually and how that actually drives where we're headed. Exactly. And, you know, I think the work that he's done is just showing us this connection between spirituality and civicness or yeah. civicality and it's on it's not a word <laughs> not a word not <laughs> a word, not a word. But, and and you know i just want to i just want to actually thank him and i you know we'll do this offline as well but i want to thank him for the way in which he was able to verbalize some of these struggles that that him and his organization 
and a lot of people in this work have taken on. And he, you know, has this incredible ability to put words to experiences that are still yes. understandable to everyone involved, not just the people that have done the work. Yep. Um, and I and I just I thought that was so incredible. He also, and this is like a really big compliment, I guess, coming from me, but like he reminds me a lot of the literature I've read by Richard Sennett. Oh, who I yeah. really admire. Yes. Um, so for all you out there, listen or read The Fall of Public Man by Richard Sennett, and uh, it'll change your way of thinking, or just listen to David, because David brought all of that and more. So I'm, I'm feeling this was great. This was incredible. Yeah, it was great. So, uh, and we'll have the link to Richard Sinner's, uh book on our we'll website. We'll have also a link to David's work and his future work. And his future work. And uh, join us in two weeks when we have uh, Lindsay Smalling from SoCal with us. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. We're a production of the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT with support from MIT's Office of Open Learning. Our sound is produced by Dave Lashansky. Our content by Julia Cubrera and Misael Galdamez. I'm Ayushi Roy. I'm Susan McDowell. And you can find us online at themove.mit.edu. And on our Medium site at medium.com forward slash themovemit, as well as our Twitter and Facebook. Thanks so much. Goodbye.